You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. I ask you to follow in a very familiar passage of Scripture today, the first chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 has many of those deep, unfathomable minds of God's sovereign purpose that we just sang about. We won't see what all of them are or what they all mean today, but I wish to let you see certain things, a certain slice of this and its application. In Ephesians 1, I'm going to read verses 3 through 10. This is God's Word. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will and to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Our Father, of these deep things that are here, these wonders that are here, help us to see this in application to life and death beyond this world that we've been thinking of. May we think your thoughts because you sponsor them. May we be faithful to this word of yours. In Jesus' name, amen. For years, Donald and David reluctantly attended church with their Christian parents. The gospel of God's salvation offered by grace through faith in Jesus Christ was made known to them in that church and Both young men were intellectually familiar enough with it that they could have told you what the gospel was. And yet, over time, as they listened to it and responded, familiarity with the truth of God bred a certain contempt in them. So that at the ages of 18 and 16, both teenagers quietly scorned what they heard on Sundays. But then out of the blue, David, the 16-year-old, attended a youth retreat, and something that was said and some way that it was said made the gospel all of a sudden come compellingly alive to him. He'd heard it before, but this time it struck home. And the folly of his sin and his ignorance of God and his cynicism towards the things of God, the reality that there was a righteous God who offered as a free gift that eternal life that David couldn't earn for himself. All this came alive in him and to him. And he trusted Christ as his Savior. 
and became zealous with his new faith. But his older brother, Don, did not share the experience. And in fact, spiritual change in his brother, David, only hardened Don's resentment of Christianity. It was, it was as if God had taken away his partner in unbelief. And now he resented God for that as well. And he sat with arms crossed and heart unmoved by gospel truth. And we asked the question, what was it that made David to differ from his brother Donald? They had the same parents, much of the same genetic coding, identical schooling, many friends in common, but there was a difference, a very large difference. And the Bible says God made them different. The Bible says that God's sovereign, mysterious grace awakened David out of unbelief into the path of eternal life. And yet here was Donald who continued as he was before. And if he ends his life never wavering from that unbelief, he and his brother will not just be a little different, they'll be eternally separated. Now we're at a point in this consideration of the theme of life after death 14 weeks into it now, where I've been dwelling for this, the eighth week, on the side of unbelief, the hard side, the the tough side, the side that you don't even want to think about, let alone speak about. We've had some very hard things to look at, what the Bible even says about the fate awaiting those who are without Christ beyond this life. I'm not taking that up directly today, but I'm looking on that subject for a final reflection through a little bit of a different lens this time. And then after some Christmas subjects in December, I pledge to you, Lord willing, we're going to look at the wonders and the beauties and the glories of resurrection life in Christ. Well, we've seen that non-believers about whom John 3.18 says they are condemned already for not believing in the name of God's one and only Son, we've seen that they are responsible for their destiny. I said to you and stressed to you from various scriptural sources that God sends no one to hell. People send themselves. I'm prepared to defend that thesis at all costs. And as expected, I heard from several of you in the hallways and by email and other ways I anticipated I would because you're thinking people, and some of you were going in your minds right where you didn't know I was going today. And you asked me, now maybe you didn't use these exact words, but I'll paraphrase, what about the subject of election in all of this? You've talked about unbelievers and said they're responsible, but what about what the Bible says that God has chosen people? And, and none of you said these words, so I'm, I'm being a little bit of liberty with my paraphrase. But it, it doesn't, isn't it true that, that God more or less rolls the dice? And some souls come up losers, and some come up winners? No, that's not true. Now I will pronounce the benediction. No. 
But that paraphrase of the doctrine of election is not true. And I wish you to try to understand why that's not true today. I cannot comprehensively treat the, the whole difficult subject of the doctrine of election, even as much of it as Ephesians 1 puts forth in these few verses that I read. But I do hope to show you an important difference between biblical election to eternal life for a child of God who is redeemed by Christ and what happens for the unbeliever, how the Scripture shows that God simply leaves the unbelief of many undisturbed so that they go on in their own chosen way. My goal is to put before you this thesis. I've really said it in former weeks, but I'm saying it in a little bit different perspective today. This thesis, biblically, biblically speaking, the lost have only themselves to blame, and the saved have only Christ to praise. I have two main points. First of all, I ask you to note what Ephesians 1 does teach about the mystery of God's grace that calls many to faith in Christ. Election, we call it. The mystery of God's grace that calls many to faith in Christ. The Bible teaches this doctrine. You may have been raised in a tradition that didn't speak the Word, didn't like the Word, argued against the Word. The Word is in the Bible. The concept is in the Bible. It's there in many different ways. And you may disagree with it, but you just need to know that it's in the Scripture. We go back to a place like Deuteronomy chapter 7 at the very root of the matter. When God chose Israel out of all other nations, He didn't say, I'm going to make a model of my grace and my working with every nation of the world. He said, this nation, those descended from Abraham, are going to be to the world in exhibit A of how I, the Lord God, the Mighty One, work with a people. And in Deuteronomy 7, it, it has a bit of an explanation as far as explanations go on why the Lord did that. I, I quote from there, the Lord did not set his affections on you, Israel, and choose you, Israel, because you were more numerous than other people. In fact, you were the fewest. And then this telling sentence, it was because the Lord loved you that he redeemed you. He loved you because he loved you. That is the explanation that God gives for his election of Israel. It doesn't go deeper than that. He chooses not to take it deeper than that. He says, I am the sovereign God, and I can love whom I will love. And that's all we're given as an explanation for the election of Israel as a nation. Now, this doctrine is one that you don't parade out for newborn believers. They wouldn't know how to cope with it. You'll get into great arguments. It is a doctrine that people tend to begin thinking about once they've been a Christian for some time and read the Bible and start seeing its concepts popping up. People tend to, to ask themselves, or maybe they ask others to help them understand, what is it that made me differ from others in the realm of faith? I know people who, who were in more likely circumstances than me. Christian homes, strong teaching, so on. Why, I come from a home without any of that, and here God has opened my heart. Why do I differ from other people in this? Well, the well-known preacher of the late 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, wrote about it. He was a strong believer in this doctrine. Here's Spurgeon's personal testimony. He said, quote, when I first came to trust in Christ as a young man, I thought I did it all myself. 
I had no idea the Lord was actually seeking me. Much later, he said, I came to see that Scripture teaches I would not have sought him at all if not for his prior influence of the Holy Spirit changing my mind, moving me, and awakening me. Yes, in fact, God was at the bottom of it all, Spurgeon said. He was the author of my faith. And when I saw this, the whole doctrine of God's grace and his sovereignty opened up wonderfully before me. That's one man's testimony. Ephesians 1.3 tells us what the goal of election is, this thorny doctrine that maybe you've rashed, worked in your mind, and your mind has never come to terms with it. At least know that it has a goal, and here's the goal, Ephesians 1.3. What's the goal of election? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, those he has elected, believers, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What's the goal of election? It's to bless people. It's to bless people with all that belongs to Christ, all the spiritual riches of knowing Christ, having His righteousness, having your life made suitable to be in the presence of God, and not a filthy, disgraceful life any longer, but a life of honor made clean by Christ. It does not say, it never says, that the purpose of election is to curse somebody. The purpose of election is to bless. It spells out the blessing in further ways here, and I'm not going into all these particular things, every one of which is equal of consideration. That blessing means adoption as his sons. It means redemption in the blood of Christ. It means being made holy and blameless. All those are things that the blessing entails. And it leads, it says here, to the praise of God's glorious grace. What's the purpose of election? In the Bible, you could go to any number of texts, you will find the same purpose, to work blessing so that people will come to Christ and sing God's praise and be His adopted family of grace in eternity. Now, further, beyond telling us the purpose, we're told here that election is a work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. They each have a part. They're all engaged in this. A common way that people look at it here and other passages is to say this simple saying that helps you remember it, that our eternal salvation or election is administered by the Father, accomplished by Christ the Son, and applied to individuals by the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke about election. John chapter 6, verse 37 and following, he was talking about this being a work that he shared with his Father. And he said, all that the Father gives to me. He was talking about people, souls. All those souls the Father gives to me will come to me. Those people my Father has known and planned will come to me. And he said, the will of him who sent me is that I should lose none of all those that he gives to me. He was talking about a definite company of people that his Father would entrust him to bless, to give the blessing of salvation and to bring into eternity with him. We further learn here that election is a work of past and present and future. Paul says it began before the creation of the world. It continues now as people come to Christ, and it will continue to the end, the very end, when God brings to final completion, all things. 
in the day of Christ. Now, we could spend weeks studying just these verses of Ephesians 1. We could, we could be like miners in here, mining every bit of mineral ore because there's a lot of it, and it's, it's packed in here. And that's not my goal. I just wanted to give you this sweeping but very positive view of election that is here. God, before the creation of the world, working through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, determined to bring His blessing of salvation and adoption and redemption and washing and holiness into the lives of many, many people. That's a right statement of what election is. But, of course, having said that, there's still mysteries here, aren't there? In fact, there's a deep mystery at the core of the whole thing. Because people come to it and they say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, why? You haven't told me why. Why? David came to Christ and not Donald. Why me and not my brother? Why my sister and not my father? Why, why, why? And and it seems so unfair if God's doing the choosing. Why, why? Well, one thing I would just like to ask you to stand back for a minute and think, do you really believe that the mighty God whose mind is so much greater than yours, owes you, here and now, in this hour of time, a complete explanation for everything he's doing. You see, the God of all the earth will and does do what is right. He is just. He cannot commit injustice. His grace has reasons, even though those reasons may not be transparent to you right now. It's one thing to say, I don't know God's reasons. They are mysterious to me. I will stand in faith with what he has told me, and I will have to rest with what I don't know right now because he hasn't revealed it. It's another thing to stand and say, you're not allowed to do that, God, because I don't understand it. Those two are quite different postures. The mystery of God's grace calls many to faith in Christ. That's election. Essentially, that's all I want to do with with Ephesians 1, because now I want to step beyond Ephesians 1 for a minute. Part of my my sermon is to tell you about what isn't in Ephesians 1 that maybe you thought was. I'll make that more plain. In the second place, I put this point before you. The mystery has to be pondered, the mystery of God passing by many who continue in their unbelief. This flip side of election, if election is God blessing the believer, there is another side. Somebody might call it the dark side if you wanted to. It's given a name. It's not election. It's called reprobation by the theologian. Reprobation speaks about God's role in relation to unbelievers who continue uninterrupted in their sin, in their unbelief, and go out to judgment in the end. What is God's role in that? That's what I want to get to now. And this is what gets people all tied up in angry knots. What they think God does in election is not what the Bible says he does. I was reminded of a program that was on National Public Radio years ago, designed it didn't have anything to do with Christian faith or theology. It was trying to prove a particular point about human psychology. But National Public Radio staged this little demonstration in a New York City subway station. They sent an individual into the station. It was filled with people waiting for a train to arrive. 
And he was a respectable guy. He had a tie on, and you know, he wasn't raving or foaming at the mouth, and he didn't appear to be drunk or anything. But he went about the platform, and he would approach people one after another, all men and women, people of all races and all ages. And he would go about, pardon my pointing, but some of you are going to get pointed at, and he would say, you're in. And then he went to another person and said, you're out. You're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. And that's all he said. And people were watching this guy and what kind of a nut is this? In what? Out of what? What difference does it make that this guy thinks I'm in or I'm out? But for some reason, they were trying to make a point, and then they interviewed some of these people afterward. And they asked the people who'd been said, you're in. How did you feel about that? And one man said, oh, I felt pretty good. I sure was glad I was in. I don't know what I'm in, but I'm glad to be in. And then they spoke to a, a lady who said, you were told you're out, and she was mad. She was indignant, and more than indignant, she was actually a little fearful. She said, what in the world is this all about? Who does this guy think he is? She was upset, and he would say, you're out. Why do I tell you that little story? I tell you that because that actually is what most people think divine election is, and it's not. In divine election, God never says, you're out. Election is about God calling people out of their sin, out of their blindness, out of their unbelief, and saying, come, awaken to faith and come to my son. You see, Ephesians 1, a premier text on this doctrine, you search it. Search it carefully. Search more of it than what I read. I didn't read the whole chapter even. Search it, and if you see something here saying, God says, you're out. I condemn you. You don't have a chance. Sorry, the door's locked in your face. In fact, would you please search the Scripture and come to me and tell me where you see anywhere in the Scripture God doing that? In other words, where in the Scripture does God initiate unbelief and lock the door? He does not. You can think, I'm sure, of a few difficult passages. Romans chapter 9. Wow, that's a tough one. The, the election of Jacob, the younger son, and, and Esau, the older son, where it even says this terrible sentence, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. You say, isn't that pretty bad? God was locking Esau out. No, God hated Esau because of Esau's blindness and sin, just as he hates all blindness and sin. It doesn't say he decided to make Esau that way. Esau was that way because of his choices. And so was Jacob at the beginning until the Lord said, I'm going to set my love on him and change him. You think of somebody who will trundle out. I'm sure I'll hear this one, so I'll anticipate it and tell you I anticipate it. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Oh, boy, there's a good one. I got the pastor that time. No, go and study those passages. Every place where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's heart was already hard. All God did was stand aside and allow the natural rebellion of the man to go deeper and deeper and for him to build his own cement walls around himself. It never says God initiated the hardness of Pharaoh. The Bible is consistent. I would maintain this to you from many, many decades of study. 
Unbelievers reject God and His truth on their initiative. You will not find a passage that says God arbitrarily chose or initiated anyone's lost condition. You won't find it. You won't find it. You see, here's the problem, and here's the reason why people get so upset about the doctrine of election. The problem is not that they don't get this doctrine. It's that they don't get another doctrine, what we call the fallen condition of humanity. Some use the phrase, the total depravity of man. All that means is what this same book of Ephesians, in my Bible, you can just look across the page, chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, he's talking to believers, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in the ways in which you used to live. D-E-A-D. It's the four-letter word about the Bible that people don't get. They all think another four-letter word, S-I-C-K. Oh, I'm sick. Sin makes me very sick. But, of course, God proffers medicine. All I have to do is take the medicine. The medicine's called Christ. I drink it down, and I have salvation. How many dead men have you seen reach out and take the medicine and drink it down? The Bible says, spiritually, the human condition is to be dead, 100% dead in your trespasses and sin. People don't take that seriously. They don't want to hear that. They want some credit for themselves. And the problem you have, you see, with the idea of God electing some to come to life is you don't think you're dead. You don't think you need to be elected to life. The human race did not fall upward. It fell downward. It fell as low as it could go until we are incapable of movement towards God for salvation. That is the Bible's doctrine. And until God initiates the miracle of a new birth, that's why he says you must be born again. You're dead. You're not alive. That's why you have to be born again spiritually. And until God initiates that, you are locked in that cycle of unbelief that you initiated and you are responsible for. Jesus advocated this. This isn't Paul's invention. John 6, Jesus spoke about it in terms of human ability. He said, no man can. That's a word of ability. Now, my first grade teacher taught us the difference between can and may. You know, little Michael raised his hand. Teacher, can I go to the bathroom? She said, Michael, I'm sure you can go to the bathroom, and you may. You are permitted to go. In other words, don't ask about ability. Ask for permission. Jesus said, no man can come. Ability does not have the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, our denomination has a confession of faith that stood us in good stead for 350 years. The Westminster Confession takes some of these doctrines and boils them down. And it uses very useful phrasing here in the Westminster Confession, chapter 3, on this, when it first speaks about those elected to life and gives a summary, and then it speaks about those not so elected. Here's what it says, quote, The rest, that's those not elected, the rest... God was pleased, according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, in other words, mystery, to do something. He was pleased to pass by. Oh, how those words help me. 
They help me understand so much about the Bible. What does God do with the unbeliever? Does he say, I am going to grab you by the neck? You are an unbeliever. You're out. You can never be in. No. He comes to someone dead in trespasses and sins and passes by. Why does he pass by? I don't know. And if any theologian or any scholar ever tries to tell you that they know, don't believe them because the Bible doesn't tell us why. That's what confounds everybody about this doctrine. There's a mystery at the root of it. But you see, election for the saved and reprobation for the lost are very different. In election, God actively chooses to intervene in a dead situation to bring life. In reprobation, he passively goes by. He didn't cause the deadness. He didn't cause the lostness. He simply chooses to, loo- to leave the person in the state in which he finds You say, that's terrible. How could God? How could God? I'm not going to try to answer how could God. I don't know. But that's what Scripture says he does. Election is God's active work. Reprobation is passive. But once more I say, the Bible nowhere speaks of God predestinating anyone to hell. Come and show me the passage that you think says that. Please, come. We'll talk about it. I don't think you'll find it. It reserves that term for his wondrous action to save those he chooses to for reasons we are not given to know. Now let's try to conclude here. I've tried to show you over a number of weeks now that the lost have only themselves to blame and the saved have only Christ to praise. That's biblical truth. You're trying to wrap your mind around it. I've tried to wrap my mind around it for decades now, and you'll never get your mind. You'll just have a wrapped mind or a warped mind when you're done. You won't wrap it around because it doesn't wrap because of that big core of mystery that we're not told. But let me tell you this. How foolish it is when somebody says, oh, you people, you believe in election. You think you're somebody really special because God elected you. How dumb how could I think I'm special because God elected me? How could I act smug about something I had nothing to do with? 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says, God chose the weak and the lowly and the things that are not to honor Him so that no one may glory in His presence. Why, He choose, chose me. And He gets glory out of that because I'm the weakest there is. How can I ever proudly say, why, I'm elect? That would be ridiculous. I didn't do it. God did it. That's why Paul came to the end of that tremendous section in Romans trying to explain salvation and all these hard concepts are there. And he got to the end of chapter 11 and he he probably thought, I haven't explained this adequately. And he wrote a doxology of praise and he said, from him, through him, Unto Him are all these things. To Him be the honor and the glory forever. Paul said, I can't get any glory out of this. It's all God. And then come those people who say, oh, well, you've just written the death knell on evangelism and missions. How is it that your church invests all that money in missions and teaches people to evangelize if you believe this fatalism? I don't think I've talked about fatalism, as a matter of fact. To believe in the election of God is to believe 
that missions and evangelism and witness and prayer for the lost have a guarantee set upon them. The guarantee is God has his people out there in the places where you work and in your families and in all the nations of the world. And he has not only ordained the the end goal for those people, he's ordained every means that will bring them to Christ, every way in which they will hear the gospel and someone will come and befriend them and teach them and mentor them. That's all part of God's ordination. So we go and do that work with a wonderful sense of we're cooperating in our humble, powerless way with the mighty God who's going to do this work. He could do it without us, but he chooses to do it with us. Finally, somebody says, well, then how does anybody know that you're one of God's elect? Let me tell you, I've talked about a doctrine that has mystery in it, but this isn't one of the mysteries. How can I know if I'm one of God's elect? I'll tell you this, if you sit there today with your arms folded in cynicism, sneering in your unbelief, saying this is all nonsense, then you have no grounds to blame God for allowing you to simply pursue the deadly course, the spiritually deadly course that you are set upon, and you will never be able to blame God for the goal, the terrible goal that you arrive at. But if, on the other hand, you have the slightest interest in your mind in trusting Christ as your Lord, Where do you think that impulse came from? If you have even a thread of inquiry and say, why, Jesus Christ is the most attractive person to me. I know he's something powerful. He's something unique. I must look into him. I must know him better. How do you think a person who is dead in their trespasses and sins starts to think that way unless they're responding to the call of God? Don't you see if you have any interest in the cross of Christ? If you trust in him, in the weakest way, Jesus said, faith like a grain of mustard seed, the tiniest quantity, where did it come from? It comes from God, the Holy Spirit. Surely it is God doing his work in you if he's drawing you to these things. I pray today that you might be one who would delight in worshiping this unfathomable, great, mighty God. Yes, he leaves mystery for us, but he's wonderful. He didn't walk away from the human project. He didn't walk away from people who were 100% set against him. He chose in his unfathomable reasons to save those he designed. I hope you're one who knows him, who knows Christ. And I hope you're one who can sing a line from that old hymn. I love it. It, it explains all this. The hymn says, I sought the Lord. But afterward, I knew he moved my soul to seek him by seeking me. And our Father, we ask that as we think once again on hard things, ultimate things, we would not simply sit here and let our brains work through this, but we would first of all rejoice in you for Christ. We rejoice for your word, for making as much of this known to us as you wanted us to know. And may we be those who worship you and witness of you and tell of the Christ who has called us, who died for us and rose for us, and do it so winsomely that many, many more, all those you've planned, would join us in that wonderful chorus of praise to you for Jesus' sake.
Amen.